tonight, and I, I used the template to, uh, to generate these slides, so it looks like green was a bad decision as a highlight color, but needless to say, I don't think there's a whole lot of green in them other than that little square up in the right-hand corner, but um, I want to talk about Satan's devices, and uh, I think many times in our Christian walks, we focus on trying to fulfill the things that God wants for us, and we try to live a life for God and a life of service. But sometimes we might not consider who our adversary is, and maybe that's okay, but it's, it's always a good reminder from Scripture to know what we're up against. And so, with that being said, I wanted to, uh, to do a study a little bit on Satan's devices. I think we're all familiar with having an opponent, whether we're, we're young or old. Uh, we know what an opponent or a, an adversary is, uh, especially if you're going through school and playing sports against other teams, or even if we sit down on a Saturday evening and, and play games with our family, we all understand that an opponent is someone that we're in disagreement with or someone that resists us or opposes us. Um, so we can make light of these opponents, of course, in our daily lives, but we don't want to make light of the opponent that we have in our spiritual lives, which is, which is Satan. And the stakes are very high in our spiritual lives because we're dealing with a very real, very dangerous opponent that can ultimately cost us our salvation in our spiritual life. The Bible does not treat the subject of Satan lightly. It does not speculate or make light of, of how dangerous our adversary is, or, and it doesn't, certainly doesn't minimize the power that Satan possesses. So, just quickly to, to look at what we want to go over tonight in understanding our adversary and Satan, we want, to, we want to take a look at his methods. And this is not a comprehensive breakdown of all these, uh, his methods by any means, but just a, a generalization of some of the methods he uses against us. Uh, and we're going to show some scriptural examples. What are his goals and then how does he achieve them? So, first of all, we need to understand our, our adversary, whether it be chess or basketball, just like we were talking about. If you know what you're up against, your chances of, of success are greater. Uh, you know, if your opponent in basketball can't dribble with their left hand, you're going to overplay. You're going to try to force that person to, uh, to go the way they don't want to go. So preparation is part of our arsenal as Christians to defend ourselves, and hopefully that's what this study does tonight, just to clarify what our, who our opponent is and, and what we're up against. And hopefully then we can be successful. So Satan's methods, the first, he blinds us to the truth of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4, it says, but even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the god of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of glory of christ who is the image of god should shine on them so 
basically, to sum this up, deception, to blind us, to, to confuse us, to not let us see clearly what God's purpose for us is, is a method that he uses. Deception and lies. And I have listed here about four examples which we're not going to look at specifically tonight, but if you think about it in general, the deception of Eve in the Garden of Eden, we know this to be a, a place where Satan was successful. Cain's anger against his brother, which turned into ultimately murder. Satan was successful. Judas and his betrayal of Christ. We know that Satan had a role in that. And then also inciting the Jews against Christ, to, which led to his crucifixion. So, all of these, the common theme was deception and lies that was laid upon these people's hearts that they would be okay, that they could get away with these sins and ultimately they wouldn't come into any kind of judgment from, from these things, but we know that is not true. John 8 and verse 44 tells us a little bit about Satan. It says, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. We're going to look at this verse a little bit later in the study, but just to give a lay of the land, we know these are facts about Satan and how he operates. You know, there's lots of biblical examples of techniques utilized by our adversary to entice us, to, to give in, for us to give in to the things that we know are sinful. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, so we've all fallen victim to this at times in our lives. And we've all succumbed at times. Satan's goal. John 10 and 10, it says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I think upon further study of this verse, we're probably referring to um, the leaders, the Pharisees at the time, uh, whenever they were trying to destroy Jesus' ministry. Um, but Satan was certainly involved in that. So what we know about Satan is that he understands God's purpose for mankind. And he, he wants to put an end to that. He wants to put us at odds with God. He wants to destroy the relationship that we have with God by any means possible. And the vehicle and the means to which he does that is through sin. And so that's how he accomplishes his goal is by enticing us with sin. Ephesians 6 and 12. For we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we all know the, the cartoon version 
of Satan and the little men. Um, but he doesn't really send out that version to physically attack us, does he? It's a spiritual battle. It's a battle for our thoughts. It's a battle for our mindset as well as our actions. And it's an all-out attack on our desire to please God. And ultimately, it's his way of trying to make us satisfy our own desires versus the desires of God. You know, we're not necessarily engaged in a physical war as we think of. We know there's lots of wars going on in the world right now. And it's not one of those. But the battle is no less real for us and no less serious. We must understand that we aren't fighting for material or land or earthly power or social prestige um, the real issue is whether we are finding victory in God's purpose for our lives. In fact, our adversary is so cunning and powerful that no level of cleverness on our part or ingenuity, um, organizational skills that we might possess, eloquent speech, charm, personality, these things may impress other men, but Satan is not influenced by these things. Paul indicated here in Ephesians 6 that our enemy has a capability to invade our mind and our thoughts and our imaginations. He attacks us on so many levels. You know, whether he influences our opinions or our convictions or our feelings, but ultimately that can influence our faith in God. So earlier I mentioned that sin is the vehicle by which Satan uses. So what is sin? So we want to kind of change gears here for a second. Does each culture or society define what sin is? Or does each religious denomination, you know, there's a lot of churches out there, denominational churches out there, do they get to define specific to that denomination or for society what sin is? The answer is no. The definary definition defines sin as an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. The Bible definition, 1 John 3 and 4, says that sin is a transgression of the law of God. And of course, uh, the New King James says, Whosoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So with that in mind... We know what we're up against. There's only one true and meaningful source of right and wrong, and that's God's Word. How do we know what's right and wrong? We can read about it in the Bible. A violation or a transgression of God's commands then puts us at odds with God because He has no sin in Him. So for us to sin then we're going to be at odds with God. So sin is, is rebellion against what God would have us to do. One thing to note is that God is never responsible. He does not lead us to sin. Our temptations are from within. It's an internal struggle that we have. Sometimes temptations are brought to the surface from outside events. 
but God never inclines us to sin. Satan is the master of this, however. Look at the temptation of Eve in the garden. You shall not surely die, he told her. In other words, who do you trust, me or God? So he laid this out for Eve, and she had to make a decision, didn't she? Satan used the same technique on Jesus, and we're going to look a little bit at the temptation of Jesus here in a minute. But basically, each time he questioned Jesus, who do you trust, me or God? Just to re- uh, show you the scripture here, James 1, 13 through 14, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot, cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You know, sometimes people wrongfully charge God or accuse God or claim that God is responsible for their rebellion and their sin. I think it's something that mankind, hopefully no one here, no one in in the faith uh, has done this, but uh, I think it's something that we should be very careful about. And we can use the example of Job. In all of his trials and temptations, in Job 1 and verse 22, it says, In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Doesn't mean that God removed Job from the temptation. In fact, he knew Job was a faithful servant and could endure the temptation presented to him. So he allowed him to endure it. But it wasn't God that, that led him to that position. Next thing we want to look at tonight is the temptation of Christ. In Luke 4, verse 1 through 13, I also, I think it's a mistake to use red. I did that uh, because of Jesus' words, but it looks like the red on the blue doesn't show up great. But we'll go ahead and, and look at the temptation of Christ because it's a good example of how Satan, number one, comes after us, but ultimately he went after the strongest person he could think of and some of the techniques he used on Christ himself. So beginning in Luke 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when, he, when, when they had ended, he was hungry, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. And I give it to whomever whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me 
All will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So there were several different things that, that Satan came at Jesus with. The first being, and also uses against us, is the, the weakness of the flesh. Satan assumed Jesus would be weak and easy prey, just like, you know, the nature shows whenever you have a weak animal, the lion is going to attack that animal. And, and in Jesus' mind, that was what he had here. After Jesus had fasted for this period of time, physically he was going to be weak. So the, the things that he attacked him were the weakness of the flesh, in other words, the stones into bread, wealth and power, the kingdoms of the world, and finally, the pride of life, the prestige and the fame. And we read that when we read about him enticing, enticing him to jump from the temple. So Satan enticed Christ first over one of our most basic needs as humans. You know, I think Survivor and Alone, some of the shows that, that have been on TV and have been popular um, show that this survival without food, we don't relate to this anymore like Americans used to, but it's a physical struggle when you go without for such a long period of time. You know, this wasn't always the case in America. Just think back to the Great Depression. People went without a lot more than we do now. But physically, this put a strain on, on Jesus and on his body. He enticed Christ over one of his most basic human needs. The craving for food and water is a basic, biological, physical need we all desire to satisfy. This basic desire for our hunger and thirst to be satisfied was compounded by the fact that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. So he wasn't just a little hungry, he was famished and he was suffering. He was definitely in physical discomfort and pain from not having food in his body and Satan and Satan knew that he would be weak and vulnerable from from a physical standpoint. Next, Satan went after Jesus in another way. You know, Jesus grew up in a modest home. He hadn't experienced all of the wealth that the world had to offer. He certainly hadn't experienced the wealth that the world has to offer these days. Satan offered him all of the kingdoms of the world, the cities, the fields, the flocks, the herds, everything that nature 
could offer and the wealth found therein. The temptation here suggests that everyone has a price. And Satan had to test Jesus to see if he had a price, didn't he? You know, it's easy to look around in society today and realize that for many, this is true. There is a price. Because we have seen many that have abandoned their faith and their morality for jobs, for wealth, for houses, for cars. It goes on and on. For the, quote, good life, or the American dream is how they would put it. The next thing that Satan attacked Jesus on was pride. The appeal of the temptation to perform a dazzling feat or an exploit that would surely amaze a crowd of onlookers. When we know we can do something and someone heckles us or challenges us, our first reaction is one of prideful retaliation. This strikes out at our very nature to show up our detractors, doesn't it? No doubt Jesus would have been instantly recognized for his abilities and his feet would have been spread like wildfire across all of Judea and that the Messiah had arrived and that this miracle would be a significant sign and wonder of Jesus' power and might had he called on God to deliver him safely and his angels. It's easy for us to get caught up in this mentality anytime we're challenged. Our pride tends to come to the surface. The provocation that happens evokes a swell of pride in us that overwhelms our sense of reason. But ultimately, what we see is the lie that Satan presents to all of us. Again, in John 8.44, it tells us there's no truth in him. For he is a liar and the father of it. So ultimately, we're teasing ourselves into believing what we want to believe and that we should satisfy our own desires. The lie in Jesus' situation, when we look at the weakness of the flesh, just do what feels good, right? Do what we're inclined to do. That won't jeopardize our souls. In regards to wealth and power, I'm a very important person. I can control the situation. In regards to the pride of life, fame and fortune and wealth are the highest and most important goals in life. That's the lie. Anything less is a failure in this life. I deserve are the words that we hear oftentimes. In Genesis 2 and verse 16, God was very straightforward in his warning to Adam and Eve. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what was the lie that Satan gave Eve? He just added one small word, not. You shall not surely die didn't turn out too well for mankind, did it? Because she gave in. And we all are going to struggle with this exact same problem 
The same lies, the same self-deceit, trying to justify ourselves, and yet we violate God's will for us when we do this. So I guess, with this being said, as Christians, we want to know how to respond to these things. And I think, for our purposes tonight, without getting too in-depth, I think it boils down to whether or not we are glorifying God. 1 Corinthians 6 and 20 says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So when we glorify God, we don't have time to think about self. We don't have time to indulge in what our flesh wants or how much money we can accumulate or how much power and pride consume our daily pursuits. And Jesus was the perfect example of self selflessness. I think it's clear that humility plays a, a role in our success, putting the things we want and desire on the back burner for the things that God has required of us. So this slide basically just depicts on each one of these, again, the weakness of the flesh. If we do what feels good, if we do what we're inclined to do, if we think about me, 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 that doesn't glorify God, does it? If we think about wealth and power or fame and fortune, you know, society tells us that these are the highest and most important goals in life. But those are self-absorbed pursuits about our own feelings, about our own interests and desires. That doesn't glorify God. The pride of life. I'm powerful. I'm in control. I'm important. That doesn't glorify God. So the lie that Satan tells us is to our own demise if we don't take God's word seriously because there is no truth in Satan telling, telling us these things. 1 Peter 5 and 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeing, seeking whom he may devour. As we mentioned earlier, it's always the weak, isn't it? We can't afford to be weak. It's always the slow. We can't afford to be slow. God has warned us to be clear-minded and alert, because Satan has the ability to jump on us as soon as we show a sign of weakness. Satan is dangerous to our physical and spiritual well-being because his purpose is to keep us in sin, to keep us out of a relationship with God. Satan has the ability to know when we're vulnerable. He knows when we are struggling with adversity and when we're weary, weakened, or susceptible to temptation. So in conclusion, hopefully we have use these verses in this study to remind us of how, number one, we have Jesus as an, as an example to us, the temptation that he endured and the success that can be had and inspire us to avoid sin. There are many other stories in the Bible that, that give us encouragement. Second uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians 2 and verses 
11 says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So that was another goal for this evening's study, that if we can look at these examples, then we won't be ignorant of the things that he uses against us. Peter and Paul remind us not to grow weak or weary because we are vulnerable. The battle for us is a daily battle that we should take seriously. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're all going to fail to glorify God at times. We're all going to sin. None of us live up to and adhere to our goal of glorifying God in every decision we make in life. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all failed. But there is good news. The end of 1 John 1, verse 9, says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, we're going to mess up, and yes, we're going to disappoint God at times, but choose a life of service, one that glorifies God. Choose a life of service to God and live to glorify Him And there's a path of righteousness that offers hope to our souls and to our lives. So, again, in conclusion tonight, know your adversary and understand his methods, his goals, and how he goes about achieving those goals. Hopefully this attention, this afternoon, our study has reminded us of how Jesus' example of temptation and success can inspire us to avoid sin. There is good news in all of this, and that's Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we didn't do a complete study on the basic principles of the gospel, um, but at this time we want to offer an invitation if there's someone that has succumbed to Satan that has been weak and would like the prayers of the church or if there's someone that would like to obey the gospel and would like to be be baptized tonight we'll offer the invitation at this time